What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Dr. Arnold Mendel. He is a Jungian therapist with 40 years experience working with individuals, couples, families, organization, and large groups, and he's also done conflict resolution work in war zones. Dr. Mendel is the founder of Process-Oriented Psychology and has extensive experience working with people diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, psychosis, and extreme states of consciousness. He is the author of more than a dozen books translated into many languages, and his new book is called Process Mind, A User's Guide to Connecting with the Mind of God. So welcome to Madness Radio, Dr. Arnold Mendel. Thank you. Thank you, Will. It's a pleasure to be with you and to connect with you and all your guests. I'm very interested in having you on the show, Arnie, because you have developed a very innovative and creative approach to working with states of madness that um, came out of Jungian psychology, that you were studied as a Jungian therapist, but then you went on to develop your own approach called process-oriented psychology, which I'm very interested in. I'm actually a student of that here in Portland, Oregon. But what people may not know also is that you actually began your work as a physicist studying in Switzerland, and then you got interested in Jungian psychology. Tell us about how you made that transition from studying physics to going into the world of psychotherapy and and psychology? Well, already as a child, I just loved nature. I love people, and I loved watching the rain come down, and I always wondered about it. Where is it coming from, that rain? Where? What are the clouds doing up there? What are the trees all about? And one thing led to another, and I began to study engineering and physics and applied physics. And uh, and then I went to MIT. And already while I was at MIT, I began to realize, my God, these people are not scientific. Well, some are not scientific enough. I mean by science, well, what I mean by science is being very accurate about noticing what's happening and exploring what we've observed. And I noticed that uh, the physics community is wonderful about uh, exploring electrons and exploring uh, subatomic states and all of that. But they were not good at exploring the observer's nature. And I missed that. Psychology should be a part of physics, but it wasn't yet. And so I decided, well, okay, that's okay, but let me go to Zurich and continue my studies. And then I was studying at, uh, in part at the physics department there at the ETH in Zurich. And then I sort of got excited about dreams. And I told one of my student colleagues, I'm dreaming a lot of wild things at night. And the colleague said, well, you better go see this old witch there in this witch doctor. And I, that's how I met Marie Louise von Franz. She was Jung's main student at the time. She wasn't a witch. She was a great character, but she was like a witch in a way. And so we studied dreams, and I got into Jungian psychology. Arnie, you said that you felt that something was missing in physics, that it wasn't scientific yes. enough. Now, is this related to the idea in quantum mechanics that the observer, the scientist, influences the thing that they're observing, and therefore, to be truly scientific it's important for physics to actually start to look at the psychology of the people who are doing the research, the people who are observing, the people who are behind the science rather than seeing them as separate from the thing that's being studied? That's right, that the observer affects what's observed. That's one of quantum physics' main uh, activities, is to, to have discovered that, yes. So to be truly scientific, physics needs to really address psychology know more about the observer. Absolutely. Who are we? <laughs> what are we? Who are we? Who is it that wants to observe something? And is there something connecting the observer and the observed? And of course, the answer is yes, it's the universe. But what is that universe? In any case, those were interests that got me going. 
So when you began to meet with Marie-Louise von Franz and study your own dreams, Mm -hmm. what was it that inspired you so much that it led you to begin to study Jungian psychology? Well, I was so excited about dreams. My God, I go to bed at night and you don't know what's going to happen. And then you dream this weird stuff and you wake up in the morning and you think about it and you think, my God, of course, who is it in that world of dreams that is giving me this fantastic information? That's what I just absolutely loved about Jung and still do and about Jungian psychology is the interest in dreams and dreaming. Arnie, what about a scientist who might say, wait a second, this is dreams and imagination and fantasies and stuff that you make up. What does that have to do with studying the objective real world that we're interested in in science? Well, I would say to a scientist, I like those questions, and I think that's the right kind of question. And science, the way it's defined today, isn't really quite scientific. It doesn't study. It rather marginalizes first-person experience, first-person discussion. So if I say, I dream this, or I dream that, or I feel this, or I feel that, science doesn't take that into account. It doesn't know what to do with first-person experience. So that is why I started to develop process work to learn how to listen to exactly what it is someone is doing. Process work, in a way, is evidence-based in the sense that it watches the person, it listens exactly to the person, and uh, I'm interested in what helps somebody exactly. What did I do? What did I say? But to do that, I have to be scientific about first-person experience, and science in general doesn't do that. So when you started to study dreams in Zurich um, using Jungian psychology, Mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you learned? How is it that dreams can be useful or helpful to us in improving our lives and solving problems? What I learned was that dreams and the dreaming process, in other words, following dreams and noticing dreams that come up during the day and what have you in fantasies, listening to those things is very, very important. It's teleological or meaningful that what people do... So Jung took first-person experience very uh, seriously up to a point. He said, watch what people dream, watch what people feel, and follow that. Try to understand it. And what would be an example of that, following the dreaming process and using dreaming to get better insight about yourself and the world? For example, a childhood dream. Jung Jung realized that childhood dreams sometimes predicted the kinds of professions people have. So, for example, in my earliest dream in childhood, I remember dreaming about a bear. And he was like chasing, (laughs) he was chasing me around, chasing me in and out of my father's car. And so, One of the meanings of that dream, which has been happening in a way throughout my whole life, it's like a a personal myth, your first dreams, is that I'm constantly going back to my fatherliness and then out from my fatherliness into the world in ever greater circles around my father's car. The bear is chasing me all the time. My fatherliness, I'm a very fatherly person. kind person, part of me, and another part of me is a bear that just loves to explore nature. That's the physicist part of me. Arnie, you went from your studies of Jung to develop your own method, which is called process work or process-oriented psychology, and it draws on a lot of different elements. There are systems theory, family therapy elements. Um, It uses a lot of psychodrama and some ideas from gestalt, and also is very body-oriented. Tell us about how you develop process work and how it's different from Jungian approaches. Well, from Jung, I learned to follow dreams, and uh, so I took that very seriously. I wanted to follow dreams. But at the time, Jung, the Jungian community was working with people mainly who could come and sit in chairs and talk to you. And I love that. I love talking with people who can sit in chairs, but it didn't work with people who were sick and dying in the hospital. It didn't work with people who were jumping around with extreme states. It didn't go far enough yet with its basic paradigm. So I decided to develop something called process work, which means follow what people are doing, even if they're not sitting in a chair, 
maybe they're lying in a bed, maybe it's their last 10 minutes of life or whatever. That's the coma work part of process work. I'm very interested in discussing the applications to extreme states and madness, but process work also has a whole perspective on power relations and social issues and does a lot of work with large groups and diversity and group conflict, which I think is really important because that gives a much deeper understanding of mental health issues and discrimination and marginalization of madness and extreme states and the power relations that are often involved in psychiatric diagnosis. How is it that you developed that whole perspective to process-oriented psychology? Well, that's just it, you know, that I, I, I went through my own analysis and after my analysis uh, was done, I realized, oh my God, there's a whole part of my personality that I have just never talked about. Will, I never dreamed about it. I was badly hurt as a child. Uh, I was born in 1940 and I was badly hurt because of religious issues by other children who decided that the religion I belonged to was something that should be eradicated and wanted to kill me. I just repressed it. It was too traumatic to, to deal with. It was only after I finished my Jungian analysis that I realized, hey, why did I have to repress? Why was this almost beyond dreams and uh, this, this experience of mine? And then I realized, wow, sitting in a chair is good, but I need to get back onto the streets. I need to learn how to work with people in a way that's real, the way people feel. I need to work with people who hate each other and who love each other. So that's how I began to develop world work and to work with people in conflict everywhere. So your interest in social issues and power relations really comes out of your own personal experience of being attacked for your religious background. Arnie, can you give us some examples to give us more of a, of a sense of how you work with dreams and how you bring that whole dreaming perspective into individual work and also group work? Well, there's all sorts of applications to what I've done with dreams. For example, I'm going to tell you a story, a very brief story about somebody who had had angina heart problems. And uh, he came to me, I was a Jungian analyst at the time, he came to me and he said, I heard you're interested in everything in life, not just dreams. I said, yeah, but before we go into dreams, tell me what are you feeling in your body? What's your first person experience of angina? Oh, he said, I have a terrible knife feeling in my, like hurts terribly. And then, then I said, aha, so there's a knife in your body there. And I said, now, what did you dream last night? And he said, oh, he said, I dreamed about a carving knife, a big one. So then I said to him, did you ever consider the possibility that maybe you should be sharper and get more to the point? He said, well, what do you mean? I am a, I'm a reverend. I'm a pastor. I work in the church. And the people have said to me sometimes, I'm too wishy-washy, I don't get to the point. So I said, it might be possible for you to get a little quicker to the point and as well as taking your medication for your heart problem. He was so delighted, he went and he made a couple of big points the next Sunday morning. And he came back and he said, gee, I want to pay you for this. And I was very happy. So that's an example of how dreams and body experiences go together and how the dreaming and body experience are meaningful and may even be healing if you can integrate them. And that same kind of pattern between body experiences, dreams, and changes that are needed in the outside world, that also shows up in group experiences. Well, as you know, the getting people together who don't like each other, one group says to another, you guys are just terrible, you are oppressive. I'm thinking right now, but I can't tell you the details of it, of a border dispute between two nations. And on the border, there's a people that are very unhappy about everything. And these people are saying, you guys oppress us terrifically. Well, the others say, we don't oppress you, of course. The main, the big nation says, we don't oppress you. And the little group says, you oppress us. And so the oppressor becomes something in the air, is dreamlike. An oppressor is in the air. No one wants to claim they're the oppressor, even though the little group too has, has I won't say the details, has endangered the bigger group, let me call it that way, tries to oppress them. 
So by playing out the oppressor, uh, which is a power in the air, both groups start to act out the oppressor instead of just accusing the other group of it. They get into it and play it out. And through that, I say to them, now get to the bottom. What's behind the oppression? And behind, and I'm thinking of one particular group process and where both groups discovered the same thing behind the oppressor is an intense desire to be recognized and valued in their individual beauty, the way they really are. And it wasn't just to oppress and kill the other person. Behind the oppressor was something deeper. It was the desire just to be valued. And as soon as both groups could see that, they're actually they do value things in the other people so that was a momentary or a temporary resolution the dreaming the dreaming here would be the oppressor which no one wants to admit that they are so this gets to something that's extremely interesting and compelling to me about process oriented psychology and your work when i had my own experiences that were called psychotic and also right. when i've had visionary experiences or gone into altered states I've come to this realization, this very powerful, mystical realization, you could call it, that the world that we live in is actually a dream, that we think of it as something that's objective, but actually what's inside of us yes. is also outside of us, and what's outside of us is a reflection of what's inside of us in exactly the same way that we experience dreaming at night. But you're saying that this is happening during the day, that reality itself is in some ways structured like a dream. And this sounds like a very far-out idea, but you've actually turned this into a practical tool for working with individual symptoms, for working with groups, for doing therapy, for doing conflict resolution. And this is really your framework of what reality is. And it draws on a lot of the world's indigenous cultures and traditions that say there is a dreaming that's going on behind events. There's a deeper underlying intelligent reality that moves behind experiences that we have. What is reality is a very central question because most wars, most inner problems that all of us have, most relationship problems are based, are, they are somehow connected with the question, what's real? So that conflict that often happens where one side says, you're crazy, and the other side you're says, crazy, no, no, you're, you're crazy. It's a yeah. conflict over what's objectively real. That kind of conflict or somebody says, I think you're after me. And the other person says, no, you're nuts. I'm not after you. That kind of thing. And so what's real? And now, so the, the reality that now I have found to be most useful is reality is a consensual. I, I start with consensus reality. Everybody says, well, reality, uh, let's say, uh, you can see the uh, moon gets eclipsed and everybody on earth will say, aha, we saw that. We took pictures of it. That's real. But that's only really been the last few hundred years. Before then, people said, uh, like, for example, in Northern Europe, people said, no, what's happening when the moon gets eclipsed? You can't suddenly see the moon. It's not that the earth came in between the sun and the moon blocking out the moon, what they said was instead, no, wolves come. And great wolves come and start eating up the moon or the sun, as the case may be. They start eating things up in the heavens. And if people don't scream, if they don't scream, those wolves won't stop it. They'll just eat everything up. So today we'd say, okay, one reality is that the earth is becoming between the sun and the moon, and therefore we can't see the moon. But another reality, let's call it dreaming because you can't see it right away happening, is that wolves are eating up the moon, and people need to scream to stop them from doing that. Otherwise, the moon will be eaten up. Now, today they call that dreaming, but I call that part, a second part of reality. Why? Because it's real. How do I know it's real? Because if you go to New York City, well, and you try to look at the moon or you try to look at the sun even on the nicest day, the sun is getting eclipsed by what? By the smog. It's as if the wolves, that means the people, us, us human beings, are eating everything up and we're making a mess out of our environment and you can hardly see 
uh, the stars or the moon or the sun or anything anymore. And we need to scream louder to stop it. And we're just on the verge of doing that. So were those early Scandinavians nuts? Were they dreaming? Dreaming is part of reality. Your dreams are aspects of reality. And if you don't see it right away, you will in time. So first is consensus reality. Then a second level of reality is dreaming, like the wolves or like personal experiences. And the third level of reality is very, very sentient and very, very subtle. It's the feeling like gravity of being moved. It's what the Aboriginal people call the dreaming. So those three levels, consensus reality, dreams, and the dreaming, let's call it, those three things together make up reality for me. You have a degree in physics from MIT. How do your studies of quantum physics support this idea that there are three levels to reality? The consensus reality level, which we can sort of observe and see objectively from the outside, the dreams level, which is our night dreams, but also our personal experiences, our emotions and feelings, myths, folklore, things that we believe in, imaginations, and then what you're calling the dream time related to Aboriginal beliefs. Well, quantum physics helps me a great deal in all of this because, and it's even led me in all of these things, because quantum physics, things happen that can't be causally explained, like one particle in a quantum system connects with another particle in a quantum system through the process called entanglement. Even though two particles may be hundreds of miles apart, they may be connected and entangled. And this is something since the 1970s or 80s and 90s that people have discovered. But dreamers have always, and shamans have always known that. You go into an altered state with someone that you're connected with, and sometimes there seems to be a synchronistic connection. Quantum physics helps me to understand dreaming. Now, what you're saying has huge implications around mental health issues, because when people are in experiences, states of consciousness that get called psychotic, we say that they're out of touch with reality. And when I have been in these altered states, and I've been in hospitals, and I've been diagnosed with schizophrenia myself, my experience was that I was in a different reality. I was not out of touch with the one reality. I was just in a different reality. And so you are presenting a framework from physics and psychology and world spirituality that supports the idea that there are alternate realities. And the question is, how do we get the realities to communicate or relate to each other? So what are the implications of what you're saying for our understandings of madness? And tell us about how you work with extreme states of consciousness. Well, the reason I use the word extreme states is because medicine, for me, when it comes to to many things like allergies and when it comes to things like extreme states or psychotic phenomena, whatever they want to call it, is in a pre-scientific phase. By that, I mean that people just don't know what it is and most of the medicines are oriented, as almost everyone knows, towards calming people down and trying to make them more reasonable, even though it doesn't always work very well. So I use the word extreme state to be more scientific because it's just that the states that you're in when you're in an extreme state are states everyone goes through a little bit. They're statistically not quite as pre prevalent as other states. So calling them sick doesn't make any sense to me. They're just... There are states that we all go through, though people who go through extreme, so-called extreme states, stay in those states longer or go through them more often. But they're absolutely onto themselves normal states of consciousness. It's just that some people have more of them than others. So even though some people are in these states to a larger degree or they stay in them longer, everyone goes through moments when they're suicidal or they're experiencing paranoia or they're in some kind of other reality or, ha or having some kind of experience that for a moment could be considered psychotic. That's absolutely right. Everyone is depressed and feels low sometimes. Everybody gets manic. Everybody thinks, oh, what the hell is life about? I don't care about life much anymore. That is a very, very common, especially in the dark periods of the year, that's a very common thought. That's why I call that, that people in so-called extreme states show the states other people don't really like to look at very much or work on. And so, because... Others want to marginalize those states. Those states become 
marginal and that people who go through those states get marginalized. And marginalized means looked down upon, oh, you're weird and you're crazy, you're sick or something like that. And that's not, that doesn't work for me. And why do you think that those experiences and the people that go through them get pushed to the sides in society? Is it, is it out of fear? Is it out of people being afraid of looking at those parts in themselves? Yes, yes, and yes. It's because culture says, in a given culture, we say, we are this, we are not that. And when we say we are not that, it means that there's aspects to us that we refuse to look at and don't want to have. When people go to school in kindergarten, teacher says, for example, I still remember working in Australia, and the teacher says to one of the Aboriginal children, stop dreaming so much. Come on, you got to be real. So suddenly dreaming and the culture of dreaming and fantasy and what have you becomes marginal and the people become marginalized. So that's why I say part of the difficulty is that cultures get very, very rigid and people who go through extreme states then come forwards with balancing kinds of experiences that could really enrich cultures. But you have to have a culture that's really open-minded to understand that. And that's, of course, my great hope. <laughs> that's a very interesting idea, and it goes against our ordinary understanding of experiences like suicide or mania or paranoia. That You're saying that they actually have something positive, potentially, to offer the culture. Will they have, that's why I call it the city in my book, the city shadow, that these people are shadows that they have, that these are people who have experiences that could be very important for the mainstream cultures to pick up on and look into spiritual experiences, far out, playful experiences, scary experiences, demons and all that sort of stuff that's just sort of pushed away. And the mainstream cultures need that more. We need to see it, people to learn, go on stage and process these great experiences to show things. So I'm still waiting for theater to happen, to bring all these experiences. I think the more cultures bring out their experiences and accept them, the better everybody will feel. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. And my guest today is Dr. Arnold Mendel. He's a Jungian therapist and the founder of Process-Oriented Psychology. He has more than 40 years' experience working with people diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, and other extreme states of consciousness. And he's the author of more than a dozen books, and his most recent book is called Process Mind, A User's Guide to Connecting with the Mind of God. These are some very interesting ideas. Can you give us some examples of how you put these into practice in your work with clients around extreme states? Sure. I've had a lot of experience, and uh, I worked uh, originally in Switzerland in main mental hospitals and stuff during a time, Will, when people still didn't have uh, psychopharmacas, uh, they didn't have the medicines to cool people off. So I saw them in their, in their states that they were. For example, a situation that comes back to me was... Uh, one of my uh, clients, who was a doctor, asked me to come and help him with a client of his in the hospital, in a mental hospital. And when I came in, uh, there was a person I saw. She was under her bed, and um, she wasn't talking. And they said she was very sick, and they didn't know what to do with her. She wouldn't come out from her bed. So I went, I didn't know what to do. So I thought, she's under the bed. What should I do? Why not join her in some way? So I went under a chair at a distance from her. So suddenly she said, she spoke in her language and she said to me, uh, it's no good being a person. So I said, aha, okay, let's stay where we are. She said, I'm in a fishbowl and I am a fish. Will, this was the first fish I had ever met who was speaking to me, and I loved it. Will, she was doing something for me that, you know, I had finished my Jungian studies, I was sitting in chairs, and here is somebody under her bed in a fishbowl who says that she's a fish. So I, I, what should I do? I don't know anything, I never learned about that, so I just went blub. 
and she went blub blub and we blubbed around together and she was under her bed and we, I and to make the story short after a couple of months she was walking on the street seeing me in my practice and then she explained to me she said to me Arnie I said it wasn't worth being a person and the reason was because my father came from a country that has done some very bad things to people and he was involved in that and as soon as I found out he was involved in doing some really bad things to other people I decided it wasn't worth being a human being anymore I didn't want to kill myself and suddenly I found myself becoming a, a fish she told me that story and it took some months before she told it and we cried together and this and that. And then anyhow, she was, let me say, normal from there on out and became actually a, well, I can't say the details. She, she became a, she, she's a great person. Good things happened to her. So you're seeing whatever the person is going through, no matter how bizarre or strange, as potentially meaningful. And then you step into it and join them in it as if you were joining them in a dream that they were having. And that becomes helpful to the person. You saying, you're saying it beautifully, Will, stepping in with her, dreaming with her is so, so important that validating her experience. And at the same time, Will, she's doing me a favor. How many times have I had the chance to play as an adult with another adult who's under the bed as a fish? I want to just say she's also healing something in me. People heal us by what they do by bringing up a marginalized experience or a very different kind of thing is in that same hospital, the doctors invited me to work with another impo so-called impossible patient. I walked in the door and there was a, a, a very thin woman at the other end of the room right near the window. There was a window in this room and she said to me as I opened the door, don't come an inch closer. This is a woman who hadn't talked to people before. And she was, she was they, they told me she didn't communicate. So anyway, she said, don't come an inch closer. So I thought to myself, hmm. I said, you're smart. Because from my experiences then already as a therapist, I imagine something unfortunate had happened to her. So I said to her, you're smart. You're brilliant and you know how to keep people at a distance, and that's important. She just looked at me for a couple of moments, and then she said, hmm, okay, you can sit down, but not too close. And so our relationship began slowly like that. That's another example. She wasn't just incommunicative. She was doing something intelligent. So you approached her in a way that validated her experience and listened to where she was coming from, and she responded to that. That's right. Looking at her, watching her, seeing what's happening and, and all of that. So that's what process work is about. You can't tell somebody exactly what to do with somebody else. You have to follow your experience. And sometimes you're experience, the kind of person you are, you may be shy or afraid of people like that. That's just fine, too. But you need to be able to follow them and yourself. Let me give you another example Another example of somebody who was brought, two men brought him to my practice. They had him on his arm, holding him down, and then they, they let, let go of him, and he was jumping all around. Uh, you might call him just plain nuts, or he was manic, or you can use any term you want, but he came into my room, and he sat on my chair. I was still trying to behave like a, a normal Jungian at that time. And this man, Will, scared me because he was sitting in the chair and suddenly, I never had never seen this ever before, uh, he jumped from a sitting position up into the air and he hit his head on my ceiling in my room. Will, that was amazing. I had never seen anything like that in my whole life. And I almost cried. I said to him, hey, you can't do that with Arnie Mandel. If you want me to be your friend, you can't do that because I'm too scared. I don't know how to deal with that, which is really true. There I was just following myself. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, my God, no one ever treated me like a person. I said, I'm not treating you like a person. I'm just chicken. 
I'm scared. Please don't do that anymore if you want to work with me. Otherwise, I'll find somebody you can work with. But anyway, it was the human relationship element there that became important. So, so there's all kinds of processes. Those are just a couple of them. You mentioned that when you were working in Switzerland in the hospital, it was in an era when medications were not used as widely as they were today and people were expressing their extreme states or their psychosis or their mania. And so you were able to work as a therapist very dynamically and creatively with that expression on its own terms. Now, today, that's not the case. Medications are used widely and routinely in any kind of expression of a bizarre state is often seen as something that needs to immediately be medicated and controlled and tranquilized. What do you think about that? What's the relationship between working with extreme states and medications? I totally understand medications. I totally understand the medical community. Uh, not everybody has enough training to work with unusual states of consciousness. And so I, I totally appreciate, and, and many people, uh, including the 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 clients or the patients feel also, gee, this makes it easier for me. This is fine. I love this. It cools me out. Great. And I think that's part of process work. They like that. That's their process. Let's follow cooling everybody down. But some things, uh, there's often a, a residue of unhappiness or misery or fear in the background that, that doesn't cover. It's not everything. They're doing as best they can but it doesn't really cover the true nature of the person. Like, for example, one of the most amazing situations I came across was one day into my practice uh, was marched a person who said, I am the light. And the people who came with him said, he said that just now. This man said, I am the light. The people who brought him said, he was saying he was the light in the middle of this big festival in downtown Zurich. And at the moment he said, I am the light, the chandelier above crashed to the floor. So they were freaked out. They thought he was a magician. Was he crazy or was he a magician? So he came in and he sat there to me and he said to me too, I am the light. And I thought, that's really exciting. Let me try that. I said, I don't know what that's like. Let me try it for a moment. I said, I'm the light. And he said, no, you're crazy if you think you're the light. The role switched, you see. He was, he was the light as long as nobody else was picking that up. It's like cultural. So I said, I'm the light. He said, no, the light will crash on your head. You've got to bring that down to earth. I just said, I don't know how to bring light down to earth. How are you supposed to do that? And he gave me all sorts of tips. So that helped him and helped me and made him into a very creative person the rest of his life. He changed all sorts of good things happened. But that's like medicines wouldn't have allowed me to know him in that state and in these altered states like quantum physics predicts. Sometimes... Uh, magical, but I'm not going to call them entangled states occur, like the light and then the light crashing. This is a possible quantum entanglement situation. People in extreme states frequently have magical or quantum-like phenomena happen to them because they're at that in that level. Arnie, one of the reasons I like the title of your new book, which is Process Mind, A User's Guide to Connecting with the Mind of God, is that it makes me think of the states that I've been in and other people who've been diagnosed with psychosis have been in, where we feel like we're plugged into the universe. We feel like we're connecting to the deeper absolute truth of the whole of reality, the mind of God. And this is not to romanticize those states, but for some of us, do you think it's possible that psychosis or madness is a positive experience and it could be part of a renewal process that could add something to the individual and even society if it's held with the kind of respect and listening and curiosity that you're talking about here? I mean, I can just say yes to you, uh, that people going through unusual states of consciousness frequently have synchronistic connections, and these are spiritual connections. Uh, people have called that God in the in the past. These days, spiritual and God experiences, uh, at least in con the consensual way of looking at things, these are things that aren't 
understood very well. And so it is the it's the great job of the person who is who is going through unusual states of consciousness to learn how to bring these what shall I call them divine experiences or synchronistic experience how to bring that closer to reality unless others can help them do it. But if you've had that experience it means you have the ability also to bring them together with everyday reality eventually. Arnie, I think one way of understanding your work is that you're really urging a rediscovery of ancient Aboriginal and indigenous wisdom and bringing it into modern science, especially psychological science and physics. And I know that you've traveled a lot and studied with Aboriginal and indigenous societies and learned from the leaders and teachers and healers there. What do you think that those cultures have to offer us in terms of the way that they deal with extreme states of madness I mean, if I think, for example, of my experiences with shamans in Aboriginal uh, Kenya uh, some years back, if someone was saying they were going through an unusual state of consciousness, these people would go into a trance and they would speak to what it is in that person they felt was bugging them or they would help them with their fantasy. Just like I play with people and talk to them, they would go into altered states and talk to their states in that way, using imagination to deal with imagination. And those shamanistic cultures still have a great deal, I feel, a great, great deal to offer our modern-day culture, which has gotten too... Uh, too rational and too 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 marginalizing of the dreaming. That's interesting how the sort of playful and creative techniques that you use are in parallel to the rituals and trance experiences that healers go through in shamanic cultures. What about the role of power, status, and rank here? Because when someone is identified as having a problem or diagnosed as having a mental disorder, there's usually a big power difference with them and the people around them, the hospitals, the providers, also the family. There's a power difference in the family. And then in the other direction, too, I think sometimes people who have extreme states exert a lot of power over the people around them. Maybe it's an out-of-control kind of power, but it's still a kind of power. How does status and rank fit in here? Well, I just think of the of the typical family situation or of a community situation. I think of the family situations which I've worked with and where somebody in the family is doing some weird stuff as far as the family is concerned. Like, uh, for example, some years back I worked with a child who had a, a, the strange habit of spitting all the time. And he just spit and spit and spit wherever he could. And his parents brought him to me. What are we going to do with this bad kid? He's spitting too much. So now here is a definite a rank situation. They are looking at him as really marginal, bad, and let's get rid of him. They have all the rank and power that you could have. And yet, so his extreme situation, in a way, is as power needs to be as powerful and was as powerful to really get them to bring him to me so it he had he was low rank in that situation low power and so by getting them to pick up his situation for example to getting them to be dirtier they were swiss they were very, swiss are very very clean people or at least most swiss are very very clean and neat so by getting them to be less neat and to spit occasionally he stopped it it's a it's again uh, a social issue. It's a rank issue. People who are in uh, unusual uh, that's one little tiny example. People who are in unusual states of consciousness uh, feel disempowered by the cultures that they're in. They're, and actually, they could be bringing something new that the whole culture needs. Like in Switzerland, to spit occasionally wouldn't be all that bad. <laughs> So in a sense, the symptom of spitting is really a role that's kind of balancing or complementing the larger context of the family and society, which is really too one-sided, being too on the side of cleanliness and control. It seems like this is related to the idea of systems and to Taoism, the Chinese philosophy of Taoism, that everything is a polarity and everything has two parts and things are always moving towards balance. Can you say something about that idea and the idea that humans are really part of these shared fields that we're actually part of each other? We're not really separate, but we're part of a larger system or whole, 
and we're playing complementary or balancing roles for each other. And it's the purpose of the deeper dreaming, which is often behind symptoms or difficulties, to help us move between the roles or get the roles into more balance or more relationship with each other. Will, you said that so well, and I would only amplify that by saying there is a Tao, and the Tao wants everyone's yin and yang. It wants everything. The field that we live in is, is whole. It, it wants everything. We need everybody. We need everybody's experience. And only everybody's experience, that's what democracy really is about, our deep democracy. Everybody's experience is needed to create a whole community. So can I, I'm going to talk about an electron just for a moment. One of my uh, teachers, Richard Feynman, who was a very well-known physicist, he, he explained quantum physics this way. He said an electron or an elementary particle going from my office to the process work center in Portland, for example, he would say an elementary particle going doesn't just go down the street directly. He said that particle tries many, many, many different paths. First, it may go by way of the moon. That particle may be going by way of Mars. It could be going by way of Hong Kong or Zurich to get to the process work center, even though my office is right near it in Portland. In other words, that it chooses, finally, the most reasonable and shortest, easiest path for itself. But all the other paths were needed to be explored first. So that's what I feel about extreme states and about all states of consciousness and all, all kinds. Of, we need everybody, everybody's way of doing things, even if it doesn't look reasonable to us at first. Wow, that's an amazing and very vivid example that the most elementary particle needs to explore all these different ways until it finds the most direct way. Mm -hmm. I imagine there might be people listening to the show right now who are going through disturbing experiences or scary experiences mm -hmm. that don't know what to do. Maybe they've gone to the doctor and the doctor mm -hmm. says, well, this is a disorder. Let's not explore this. Let's take a medication. What would you say to them? What sort of advice would you offer? Well, I would say to the person, follow your own true nature. You know more than all of us. Follow your true nature. If it feels better for you to take care of yourself in a conventional way and take something to calm things down, go ahead and try it. If it doesn't work, try another path, like the electron. Then go ahead and look. go into the meaning of it. Find somebody who will travel with you in the sense of move with you into that state. If you, if you can do it by yourself, terrific. If you need help, Find somebody who will play with you with those states or explore them with you. Don't just think there's something terribly wrong with you. Consider the possibility that what's bothering you might be very significant, not just for you, but for me and for everybody. Are you hopeful for the future, Arnie? Do you feel that society can make the kinds of changes to listen to our dreams more and to take a different kind of perspective, a more indigenous or spiritual perspective on reality? Are you hopeful for the future? That's a very good question, a very big question. Am I hopeful about the future? And I can say, I love people the way they are. In other words, the way people are is not what bothers me. What would make me happier is if we could find a small percentage of people who are able to play with and move with and facilitate the various fields and the various conflicts on this planet. People who can say yes to this state of consciousness and to this idea and also maybe a little bit yes to that state of consciousness. We need more of them. And I'm not just hopeful. That's what my whole work is about, trying to find better facilitators for all of this. We certainly need that around mental health, more valuing of experiences that get called psychosis or disorders. Your new book is called Process Mind, A User's Guide to Connecting with the Mind of God, and you developed a whole earth-based approach as part of process-oriented psychology. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, you know, because of that goes back to my physics background, Einstein always wanted, he, he said, 
I want to know, he said, I want to know the mind of God. I want to know the thoughts of God. Everything else is a detail. What's this universe about? How did we get, what are we doing here? And what's it all about? And this is one of my great drives is to explore that and to find out more about the process mind and, and the mind of God is a physicist's term for the laws of nature. I want to understand more what, are, what is the mind that we are living in. How can we play with it more, understand it more, find out more about it? And that book is about just finding the centering self inside of you. It's the intelligence in the field that can work with all the various polarities. So we project sometimes the deepest part of ourself upon wonderful spots on earth. And so the Process Mind book tells you how to get in touch with yourself through those spots on earth and use it in practical ways in everyday life. We are quickly running out of time. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Arnie? Thank, thank you. I just want to stress again, we need everyone. We need every experience. Only together do we create a wholeness. It's a very important thing for me. It's a social issue. It's a medical issue. And the more that we realize also as practitioners or as clients that we need all kinds of states of conscious, we need to understand them all. We need everybody. Everybody's important. I feel that attitude is something I really would love to get across and need help from others in getting across. And how can people get in touch with you and find out more about your work? The best way to get in contact uh, with me or with Amy and me, my, my partner, my wife, is www.aa, that's two A's, aamindel.net, A-A-M-I-N-D-E-L-L.net, or you can find us on Facebook. Arnold Mendel, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. It's been a pleasure, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Arnold Mendel. He's a Jungian therapist who developed process-oriented psychology. He has more than 40 years' experience working with individuals, couples, and groups, including people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar, and having psychosis. He's the author of more than 12 books that have been translated into many different languages, and his most recent book is called Process Mind, A User's Guide to Connecting with the Mind of God. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.